VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I remember, you know, the morning that we knew we would arrive. I woke up super early. I was like a kid on Christmas and I ran up to the bridge. A good handful of my shipmates were up there already and many people described the glacier on that first morning as looking sick or gnarly, that it was full of sort of like strange crevassing and slumping. So I remember feeling like my heart was being pulled in sort of two directions at the same time, like incredible awe and incredible grief to realize that like this thing that literally has taken me a month to get to, it's the farthest I've ever traveled in my entire life, is being forced into strange shapes by human activity so far away from it. That's Elizabeth Rush. The glacier she saw that morning is Antarctica's Thwaites Glacier. It's often called the Doomsday Glacier because its melting would cause sea level rise that would be catastrophic. She's written a wonderful lyrical book about that journey called The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth. We began our conversation with how she developed her people-focused approach to writing about the changing climate in an earlier book, a 2018 Pulitzer Prize finalist called Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. This is so great to be talking to you because you've written such a beautiful book. Thank you so much. The thing that interests me a lot is that you've been dedicated to environmental journalism for a while now. And I was very struck by something you said that you felt pretty fatigued by the language you had to use to get your story into the newspaper. What did you mean by that? When I started writing about climate change, it was over a decade ago, and I felt like any time I wanted to try to get a story picked up by mainstream news media, I had to, you know, give it some kind of headline like, uh, record-breaking storm destroys small town, you know? The world is coming to an end. The world is coming to an end. And so I got really tired by using that language because it literally turned all of these unique, unprecedented, world-shifting moments into the same thing, right? Mm, And so they all start to sound really similar. Right. And I basically, like, started to apply for grants and stuff that would allow me to take the time to write a book 
and step out of that 24-hour news feed and, and try to come up with a kind of like new language or new way of talking about climate change. Is that when you began interviewing people about their ways of coping? I was doing those interviews at some level for some of the news stories that I would write. Ah, and then I, I just see. never fit like the actual interesting stuff of the interview into the story. Right. Um, so... But but then as I, you know, got that grant and really dove into the project of Rising, I started to do more interviews that were iterative and of longer length and really about building friendships and relationships inside of these communities. And you didn't have to speak in such a, a apocalyptic language. No, I could just talk to them in like everyday language. Like how do you how do you raise a house? How do you gut a house after it's flooded? What are you saving? What are you, you know, scared to lose? What are you excited to change? And those were way more interesting conversations because it was a conversation. Like those people had real knowledge that I didn't have. And if I just walked in there and was like, the world is ending, then, you know, you're not listening to them. You're just telling them that the world is ending. Yeah, exactly. But then in your present book, which is so beautifully written, The Quickening, you go to one of the worst places in the world, as far as climate change is concerned, the Thwaites Glacier, which has the reputation of being the Doomsday Glacier. How do you, how do you write about that without a sense of alarm? <laughs> I mean, first of all, why is it called the Doomsday Glacier? It's called the Doomsday Glacier because um, it's in West Antarctica, and it sits on land that, in part because of the weight of the glacier on top of it, has been pushed below sea level, which means that the ocean um, is working its way under the glacier and eating away at it from beneath. So does that make it slide sooner, faster? Yeah, I, I mean, that. what happens is that that leads to structural instability, which causes it to collapse. And so instead of a mechanism like the atmospheric warming melting the ice, you're literally getting warm water eating away at the underside and creating all of these sort of like fractures and rivulets. And you just need a couple of those to break off a big chunk of the glacier. As opposed to if we're talking about atmospheric warming from the top, you know, that's like a slower melt. This Thwaites Glacier, how dangerous is it? Just to get alarming for a minute. Well, Thwaites contains enough ice to raise global sea levels two feet. It's Oy. the widest glacier in the world. And it's also kind of like a cork to the entire West Antarctic ice sheet, um, which also sits largely on this land that's pushed below sea level. Um, and the West Antarctic ice sheet contains 10 feet of global sea level rise or more. So, um, so it could be responsible in the long run, for 12 feet of sea level rise. Yes. Which is kind of a lot. Yeah. I mean, that would like fundamentally reshape our coastline. And the question is really uh, how much and how fast with the weights? Is it happening uh, in this century? Is it happening over the next 500 years? Uh, there was literally no observational data from the place where the weights discharges ice into the sea before our mission. And so our mission was to gather as much raw observational data as possible so that we could better understand the way it's past, present, and future. And you and the team that went there, 
that was the first people ever to visit this place, which is so critical, so crucial. Yeah. How did you get involved in that project? Well, the National Science Foundation every year sends two artists or writers to Antarctica. And I literally put together a 60-page application uh, for that grant. And I knew that going to Thwaites was going to be a long shot. There was no field camp there. And so I put kind of like an asterisk like at the bottom of my application that was like, I'd love to go to McMurdo and I'd love to go to these different um, climate change related sites around McMurdo. But what I really want to do is go to Thwaites. So if there's any chance I could go to Thwaites, please let me know. And my program officer was an advocate for me from the start. And she sat in on a meeting at the kind of the 11th hour of the team that was planning the first big push of field science at the Waits Glacier in the history of the planet. And there was one birth left on this <laughs> icebreaker, and she recommended that they give it to me. So very lucky. So you take off with this group of scientists. Did you feel uncomfortable th- that you might be making them uncomfortable by asking them, observing them? Absolutely. As one scientist said to me very early on, she was like, you know, when we put in our grant applications, no one asked us if we wanted to be under constant surveillance. Uh, So they didn't know. Um, I was on the boat as a writer. I was really conscious of just um, essentially them not giving consent for me to be there. And so every single time I would interview anyone, I would start every conversation with, you know, do you consent to be interviewed? I'd like to talk to you like on the record now, Um, because I didn't want them to feel like I was sort of like lurking around and just like picking up stuff secondhand. I wanted to be very deliberate, like, okay, this is a moment where you're on. We can also be together. And I'm and I'm not always the writer, but I also am always the writer. Like, (laughs) it's really, uh, you know, and they knew that. Um, I also tend to take a lot of notes in notebooks. And so, you know, there's I spent a lot of time on the boat when I wasn't directly recording conversations where I would have my notebook out and be observing um, details like what's playing on the stereo or what does the ice look like. I also said to everyone on the boat, I'm going to send you this book before it goes to print and I'll literally highlight anything that's related to you in speech or description Uh. and you'll get to review it and change it if you want. That's my contract with you. Um, and I did, I made good on that. So before, about a year ago, I sent out 33 different copies of this book to the 33 Mm. different characters that are in it with their sections highlighted and then, you know, asked for their feedback and literally made every change that was asked of me. So it wasn't much, but most people wanted to change how they talked about their moms (laughs) Uh, more than anything. (laughs) And... That's great. <laughs> I was like, sure, I can change that. That's fine. Your mom's going to read this and you you want to change that. I respect that. So at one point you decided to see if you could help the scientists in their work. What was behind that decision and how was it received? Two impulses drove that decision. One was the incredibly short amount of time that we had at this glacier and the need to accomplish so much. So we had an 11-day medical evacuation that literally used up about a third of our science days. And you have, when you're working in um, Antarctica, 
there's always the threat of the ocean freezing over. And that's the thing that's going to kick you out. That's the clock that is always ticking. So when we evacuated someone for 11 days and went back to the work site, we lost those 11 days. We knew the ocean would start to ice over towards the middle of March and that we would have to leave around then. So one thing that drove it was like the need to help my shipmates get done what they set out to do in this incredibly condensed time period. And the other thing that drove it was a desire to participate and know at like an experiential level what went into making Antarctic science happen. That's the writer in me. I always want to, you know, if I can get as close to the experience as possible, Mm. it'll help me write a more compelling description of it. So two motivating factors there. There are scenes of you helping and effectively helping. And there's this one, I don't mean to embarrass you by bringing it up, but there's one scene that's so touching because in the process of helping carry a core sample that's going to give a lot of evidence about what happened in the history of that glacier. What happened? You dropped your end? What happened? Something awful happened. I mean, it was absolutely horrible and mortifying and probably the most ashamed I've ever been in my adult life. I dropped the entirety of the second um, sediment core to be gathered in front of the Waits Glacier. And and that moment, not that moment, but what happened afterwards was probably one of the biggest learning experiences I had on this expedition. I remember going to every single person on that team and apologizing and saying, you know, I'm so sorry I was trying to help and I actually ended up hurting this project. And um, a young woman named Megan said to me, you know, here's the thing with field work and Antarctic field work in particular, you have no choice but to be accountable. Like you don't, you literally can't get off this boat. You can't pretend it wasn't you. Everyone knows that it was you. You have to be accountable for it. And then you have to move on because there's still science to be done. So the more you you know, have like wallow, the less you're getting done. So like you own it, you apologize and you move on. And I think that kind of radical accountability is something that um, I try to enact more in my day-to-day life instead of, you know, being ashamed or hiding from something that I'm embarrassed by. I try to own it and keep moving forward. Well, that was a striking way to learn that. (laughs) Because <laughs> it must have been devastating for you and easy to hang on to the the guilt about it because one of the scientists, as I remember in the book, one of the scientists needed that evidence for her doctoral thesis. Is that right? I'm nodding my head yes very yeah. slowly. Oh, I'm so um, sorry for both of you. Well, you know... She did need that evidence for her doctoral thesis, but then we went ahead and like gathered dozens more cores and she went on to use one of the other cores. Oh, good. I wasn't aware of that. That's good. Yes. Um, Glad glad to know that. And she actually, she and I talked when I sent her a copy of the draft and she was like, wow, I reacted so strongly. Like she felt a little bit embarrassed by how (sighs) strong her reaction was. And I was like, don't worry, it was completely in line with, you know, this devastating news that I brought to you. And she said, oh, well, you know, I just got this paper published and I'm excited about it. So, you know, it didn't actually undermine her ability to do her thesis. There were a few days where it felt like it did, though. Yeah. 
So you traveled this long distance to get to Thwaites itself. Mm. What was it like when you first saw it or you first stepped on it? We didn't ever step on it. So uh, Yeah, I'm okay. just, just realizing that would yeah. be kind of hard. I was sort of disappointed. I was like, I never even touched it. We went all that way and I got, you know, within literally a hundred feet of it, but I never fully touched it. Um, I remember, you know, the morning that we knew we would arrive, I woke up super early. I was like a kid on Christmas and I ran up to the bridge, which is, you know, the place where the captain and the mate steer the boat and it has like windows on all sides and a good handful of my shipmates were up there already. And everyone was just, it was like we were in a, like a cathedral staring at this otherworldly form that some folks on that bridge had been literally trying to get to for decades. Mm. Um, you know, I'd been interested in it for years, but there are people who've devoted their entire lives to this glacier. Um, and to have it finally come into view was really just sort of gobsmacking. And at the same time, I had no reference point for what I was looking at. Like I'd never seen an ice shelf before. So for me, it was, you know, everything about it was novel. And so I definitely started to interview people on that morning who'd been around more ice shelves and who maybe had expectations around what the weights would look like. And many people described the glacier on that first morning as looking sick or gnarly, um, that it was full of sort of like strange crevassing and slumping. So I think there was this so, sense. So did that mean it was probably more unstable than they expected? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was definitely more unstable looking and strange looking than they, than they expected. And so I remember feeling like my heart was being pulled in sort of two directions at the same time, like incredible awe and incredible grief to realize that like this thing that literally has taken me a month to get to, it's the farthest I've ever traveled in my entire life, is being forced into strange shapes by human activity so far away from it. So explain that last sentence to me, because... The impression I got from the book was that the submarine that you mm. finally got to go, I guess, under the glacier. Huh? Yeah, like under the ice shelf at the front of the glacier. Right, right. Yep. That revealed that more warm water than anybody imagined was melting the glacier. Now, did that warm water get warm because of human activity? Um, yes. So the warm water that is melting the weights... Um, it's called circumpolar deep water. And this is very counterintuitive to me, but it rests at the bottom of the ocean. And partly what's happening is that the ocean currents around Antarctica are changing and they are because of climate change. Like we know that the, the way that, um, the Antarctic circumpolar current is now is swirling around Antarctica, is shifting, and this band of heavy hot water that typically sits sort of on the far side of the continental shelf is being pushed deeper under this glacier than ever before. But there's like not enough data to really prove that yet. Mm. 
that's how that's how remote this place is. And a lot of the data that we have around ocean temperature and things like that comes from the oil and gas industry. And um, because extraction has been banned from Antarctica for, I want to say since the late 80s, like we really just don't have any, we don't have much data about like what's been happening in the ocean around Antarctica. So that's one of the things we're trying to remedy. We do think that current's probably getting warmer and it's probably human caused, but we can't really prove it yet. When we come back from our break, Elizabeth Rush tells me why she called her new book The Quickening and how her trip to the Thwaites Glacier complicated her decision to become a mother. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Elizabeth Rush. The title of the book, The Quickening, what did you mean by that? It is a kind of a play on words. So I think we are probably most familiar with quickening as a word that sounds like, you know, to speed up, to uh, accelerate. Mm. And on the one level, quickening is in reference to the speed at which this glacier is moving. So we tend to think of glaciers at moving at a glacial speed, but they're moving much more rapidly than they ever have in human history. And so I think of them as accelerating or quickening. Um, quickening is also a word that's used to describe when a woman first feels her baby's movement. So this is a book that's also about the choice to have a child as the climate crisis accelerates. It's the moment where you kind of like recognize the animacy, the life of the being inside of me. And also thinking then about the glaciers as maybe not just accelerating, but also in that shift in their speed, becoming more legible to humans as alive, mm. as animate, as stepping into human time and becoming actors in human time. And I think that's part of what climate change is changing. We're starting to see and having to reckon with the animacy of the more than human world. And 
So, you know, I don't think that's necessarily an inherently bad thing. It's kind of like, what do we do in response to it? That determines whether it's good or bad. I know in the book you spent a lot of time thinking about whether or not you should have a baby. What what finally persuaded you to do that? I mean, I think I would be lying if I said any single thing like persuaded me to have a child. I think a more um, truthful answer is that I just never felt the desire go away, even with everything I know about climate change. And so at some level, it it's more like, how do I live with that decision? And, you know, one of the ways I think I live with that decision is by being really active inside of the climate community and working with others towards collective climate solutions. The other thing I'll say is that I did, when I was pregnant, really discover that the fossil fuel industry is responsible for popularizing the carbon footprint and for that kind of blame shifting onto individuals where we go to the grocery store and we worry like, you know, should I get organic peaches that are from California or local peaches that are not organic from New Jersey? Like which one is the right climate choice? And I think we spend a ton of time spinning our wheels in that space where we feel very incredible amounts of shame over individual actions. Um, And all of that energy could be better used, you know, towards getting together with your neighbors or colleagues or friends to affect a larger scale change. Um, So when I found out about sort of carbon footprints being popularized, and by popularized, I mean really like funded and pushed into American culture by the fossil fuel industry and BP in particular, a lot of the shame that I felt around having a child went away. And it actually changed into rage, like rage at those companies for making me feel shame about this really um, profound spiritual, you know, decision that a human person can make. The riff you did in the book on that subject of the oil company, BP, I think it was, Mm -hmm. making it popular to think that people's individual consumerism choices were doing more damage than the oil they were pumping out mm-hmm. of the earth mm-hmm. and the profits they were making on that mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't have to be responsible, but now you and I can be responsible. Exactly. That was a, an eye-opening experience for me to read that. I'm glad. I, I, You know, I remember when I first read about it and it was very eye-opening for me. So if it's helping other people um, have a moment like that, I'm really glad. Not that it probably doesn't hurt when you can to make a, a good choice, turn the lights out. Yeah, I'm not saying like we should all drive Hummers and like, you know, blast our air conditioning all the time. I think we also have to rein in and slow down our dependency on just consuming, period. But I think that like getting lost in the minutia of it, of like how much is this versus that versus this, I do feel like that's a bit of wasted energy. Tell me something about what's happening now. I understand that the sea ice around Antarctica is dramatically lower this year. What do you suppose that means? Well, sea ice has a buttressing effect. So you you pack enough sea ice around Antarctica, and it kind of 
like acts as a backstop and can hold some of those glaciers in place. So glaciers are all large rivers of ice. They're, glaciers are always kind of gaining um, precipitation inland and losing or dumping that precipitation in the form of ice into the ocean. Um, and if a glacier is doing that, it's considered imbalance. When you start to lose more ice off the front than you kind of gain inland is when a glacier's out of balance. And we're seeing that happen at every single station around Antarctica and all around Greenland and all around the world. So all of these glaciers are falling out of balance. I would suspect that after this less sea ice than normal winter in Antarctica, we're going to see a lot of these marine terminating glaciers accelerate. I would imagine that to be true. This brings up a point that you make in the book a couple of times, I think, that the scientists seem to express some frustration over the idea that we don't really know how fast this is happening. Is that true? And does that make it hard to report on it? Yeah, I think that, I mean, similar to that kind of like record-breaking headline conversation that we had um, a few minutes ago, people want or expect the news from Antarctica to be like, you know, it's accelerating, the water's warmer, it's getting worse. And close your front door. Close your front door. And just the reality is that we have so little observational data from Antarctica that some of those things are harder to actually prove. It doesn't mean that they're not happening. It's just hard to prove with the data that we have. And I think they kind of build a false narrative. Like when we talk about, oh, is it going to be three feet or five feet of sea level mm. rise by the end of the century? Many of those models don't take West Antarctica into account because we just don't have enough data to take it into account. Mm. If you add some of that in, you know, as we're getting more and more information around what's happening in Antarctica, some of those predictions are probably going to skew upwards. Um, they're certainly going to become a little bit harder to like nail down the exact window. The more we learn about West Antarctica, the bigger the window is going to be for a minute. Mm. And I think that's also really unnerving to people. It's like, how could we learn more and our predictions become more unreliable? And it's like, well, before we knew so little, little that we didn't even include them in the prediction, this place in the prediction. So. Well, why, why did it take so long since it's such a critical element in climate change? Why do you suppose it took so long to get there? That's such a fascinating question, and um, I think it's really important to remember that until the 90s, we thought that Antarctica was in balance. We thought that the amount of ice coming out of Antarctica equaled the amount of ice that was the precipitation that was falling on it. So, like, we literally didn't know that Antarctica was losing ice until, like, 30 years ago, mm. and we didn't know until 20 years ago that the ocean was probably driving that ice loss, and then, you know, a big push of government-funded scientific programs uh, focused in the early 2000s on Pine Island Glacier, which is very close to Thwaites Glacier and is the fastest moving of Antarctica's glaciers. And so people were like, if we only have enough money to send one expedition to Antarctica every year, it should probably go to Pine Island so we can figure out what's happening there. Um, 
And what they found out is that Pine Island kind of sits in a trough and it's pretty contained. And so it's moving quickly, but it's like not likely to have this big, large-scale impact on global sea level rise. They started to look at the weights next door, which sits in a much wider basin and therefore kind of acts as a cork to all the ice that's around it, holding it in place. And they were like, oh, that's the glacier we really need to worry about. Well, I'm glad they figured that out, and I'm glad that you got there and were able to write this magnificent book about it. Thank it's so, you. It's so personal and is filled with so many stories that are fascinating, touching, sometimes funny, really terrific. Thank you. I wish we could talk longer about it, but our time is running out. However, we end every show with seven quick questions. Seven quick questions? Yeah, roughly to do with communication. Okay. First question, of all the things there are to understand, what do you wish you really understood? Hmm. Um, this is not a quick question. This is a very hard question. Um, I suppose I would really love to know if we're alone in the universe and like, you know, what exists at the expansive edges of the universe. It's great. a pretty unknowable thing. Yeah, great, great. Second question, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You don't tell them that they have their facts <laughs> wrong. You present them with an opportunity to encounter new or different facts. Okay. Third, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I don't think I know the answer to that. What is the strangest question that anyone has ever asked me? Can I pass? And I'd let me sure. think if something else comes up sure, to mind, but sure, I don't really sure. have anything. Yeah. No problem. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Hmm. Well, some part of me is also like, I want to go back to the like chain, like how do you change someone's facts? Yeah, right. I also think you listen to them. Like it sounds very counterintuitive, but you don't like cut them off or silence them. I think it's like you have to really make space to listen to someone and then maybe present the new opportunity. But if you, you know, start by trying to silence them, then you're just like going down the wrong path. Right. So I'm also thinking about the compulsive talker in a kind of similar way. It's like, it's not going to work if you try to stop them. But I think what I often do is try to like redirect conversation um, I don't think, like, it's hard to stop the flow of a raging river, but I would often try to, like, redirect or keep them moving in a direction that's maybe useful for me. Um, you can also stop by walking away. <laughs> a number of people have suggested that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you never met before. How do you, how do you begin a really genuine conversation? I think you have to observe them and like kind of look at their being and their body and the ornaments that they have on it. And you have to try to imagine in your mind, like which thing could you get them talking about, which is probably the most like unique or symbolic of who they are. And then you ask them a question about that. Okay. Next to last. What gives you confidence? Mm, 
you know what gives me confidence is the fact that I have a really amazing, uh, small but mighty family around me that loves me wholly, and their love gives me confidence. My parents, my husband, my son, my best friend. Great. Okay, last question. You'll be glad to know it's the last question. (laughs) (laughs) What book changed your life? That one's easy. Svetlana Aleksevich's Voices from Chernobyl. It is the story of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster and its aftermath as told entirely in the voices of Belarusians who lived through it. So it's composed of 92 different testimonies of people um, talking about their firsthand experience of Chernobyl and afterwards. And it made me realize that I could write in such a way where my interviewee would speak directly to the reader. Um, Because the thing that transforms me is listening during an interview. And so I want my readers to have a a more immediate experience of that. I don't always want to be like a cipher through which they hear other people's stories. Well, I'm glad you read that book because that technique of telling stories has enriched your work wonderfully. Absolutely. It was a key key text for me. You mentioned something about speaking to the reader directly. And I think you said in an interview before you wrote the book that you were planning to write it in the second person. You, you do this, you mm-hmm. do that. What changed your mind? There is a draft of this book that is entirely in the second person. Um, so I tried it. I wrote the entire book in the second person. And Then I invited a dear friend, Carrie Arsenault, who's also an environmental writer, and Sumanth Pravakur, who's executive editor of Ryan Magazine. And I made them goulash, and I sent them both copies of, like, the first 50 pages in second person and first person. And I said, we're going to get together and have a battle royale around which point of view this book should be told from. And they said to me, second person, no. Because it's, you can't tell people what to do around reproduction. And your book is really not interested in telling people how to be act or behave. It's more about like presenting the question and giving them a space to wrestle with it. Um, but they also said first person it sounded too much like the explorer narratives that I was trying to kind of avoid. Um, and Sumanth very wisely was like, what about first person plural? We, we do this, we do that. And so I think the book has a slippery first person. It's singular sometimes, and it's plural at other times. Well, I'm glad you've latched onto it, and I'm glad you found the time away from three-year-old Nicholas. (laughs) It was hard. That was really hard. Oh, no. Today was easy. Writing the book for like three years while he was growing up was a challenge. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Elizabeth Rush teaches creative nonfiction writing at Brown University. Her 2018 Pulitzer finalist book is Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. And her latest book, published today, is The Quickening, creation and community at the ends of the earth. 
This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Nancy Canwisher. She's a neuroscientist who discovered a part of the brain that I have a little problem with, the part that allows us to recognize faces. So I was eager to catch up with her on her latest research, which turns out to be all about the theme of clear and vivid, connecting and communicating. When we go around and do stuff in the world, we don't just look at a person and say, oh, that's Alan's face, that's it, end of story. We say, okay, there's Alan's face. You know, what should I say to him? What is he thinking now? What am I gonna say next? Where did I see him last? All, all of those things require other brain regions. So these, all of these regions need to be interacting with, talking to each other, sharing information. How information moves around in the brain from one region to the next is something I am deeply interested in. What shunts it in one direction rather than another direction? I think that would be really cool. Nancy Canwisher exploring the brain. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted where I felt adventure's pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time.